You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author M.P. Woodward about his new novel, Dead Drop. M.P. is a veteran of both intelligence operations and the entertainment industry, and he has worked alongside U.S. Special Forces as well as the CIA and NSA. Welcome to the show, M.P. Hey, Mike. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right. Before we talk about your latest book, um, when is it that you decided to make the switch from a military or an intelligence career to being an author? Well, I, I had, uh, I think, maybe writers are, are, are born, not made. <laughs> um, I, it, it was something I had always uh, wanted to do and dreamed of uh, from a very young age. But um, I, uh, when I went into the, the service, uh, they made me an intelligence officer in the Navy, and eventually I ended up in a situation where I was in charge of uh, scripting exercises for the U.S. Pacific Command. And that was a great, great training for someone who was always interested in, in being a writer because it meant that I had to come up with uh, scenarios and the message traffic that supported those scenarios and even surprises and twists so that the various commands reacting to the exercises, you know, were sort of caught off balance. So I tended to, to think of them as my, as my customers and myself as the writer of these, uh, of these stories. And um, having, having worked closely with, you know, knowing how the government worked at that point and how the intelligence establishment worked at that point, that all, that all sort of informed uh, my later writing career. Well, that's an interesting backdrop to writing. And, and you know, I w- I've read Dead Drop, the new book, which we're going to talk about, and it's really well written and I enjoyed it. But you're, you're a little unusual in, in that I interview a lot of folks who have gone through CFA programs and have their masters and all that. What you're saying is that most of your experience for the writing came from your, your being in the military. Uh, it, it, it did. Uh-huh. Um, I, would, I would add, though, that when... I left, I left the service because uh, intelligence uh, these days is, is a highly technical yeah. field, and really all sophisticated military operations are highly technical and coordinate many different um, automated and, and computerized systems uh, at great distances. And so that, that, that prepared me really for a career in technology. So I spent the next, you know, after I left the service around the year 2000, I spent the next uh, 20 odd years in the tech world and eventually ended up at Amazon and Amazon rather famously does everything via, via, via written document. <laughs> uh-huh. So unlike every other company I'd worked at at that point, which communicated via PowerPoint, Amazon really communicates via, um, memos, you know, would be the old yeah, fashioned yeah. word, but we just call them documents. And that, that really honed over, you know, seven or eight years. That really honed my my writing uh, performance. I, I I remember thinking while I was at Amazon that the best training to work uh, at Amazon is certainly some business, but really to also be a journalist uh-huh. because that's that's very much how the company functions. Okay. Well, all right. Let me ask you one more question about that. Or, and when I interview authors, they will tell me that they're either an outliner, you know, in other words, before they start their book, they outline everything, or they kind of fly by the seat of their pants. For your show, for your book, Dead Drop, and the series, which we're going to chat about, which which was it for you? 
Um, I, I would say I'm an, I would say I'm closer to an outliner, but, but a very loose outliner. Okay. So I start with the vision for an ending and, yeah. and work a little bit backwards from there. But I, I don't, I don't think, I think that if I didn't have an ending and an arc in mind um, for each character that I would end up writing down a lot of blind alleys. And so to me, it's, it's just a lot more efficient and purpose driven to know exactly where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Even if while I'm doing it, you know, I come up with other ideas along the way or things that I think, Hey, this would be a way to create a little more suspense here, or here's another detail you can add in. I still like to have the big picture. I got you. All right. Well, let's talk about the book dead drop. It's part of a series, the handler series. Tell us what is a handler? <laughs> um, so the, the very the very first book was called uh, the handler, and that was meant to be a bit of a of a of a, a double entendre uh-huh. because in in the uh, the classic definition of a handler in the espionage world is the person who works for the spy agency, so say a CIA officer that then handles uh, an asset or an agent. And an asset or an agent, um, you know, might be paid by the, the, the CIA, but they don't they're not like a, a badged employee of the CIA. And so in that first novel, um, The Handler, the it was about a divorced couple where the the ex-wife is still in the CIA. The ex-husband is out and no longer wants anything to do with it. But a certain asset will only deal with that with that ex-husband um, because he has a trusted relationship with him. Right. So, so the wife has to draft the husband back into it, and in so doing, she's handling him. But ultimately, he, he is the handler of this asset. So that, that was, that was okay. the play on All right. the title. All right. So um, in the book, you mentioned different intelligence agencies, you know, the FBI, CIA, Mossad, and then MOIS. I assume most people will know what FBI and, and the CIA are and what their areas are. Talk to us a little bit for listeners that may not know who Mossad is and who MOIS is. Sure. So in Dead Drop, I really wanted to um, play with the idea that there are competing intelligence agencies around the world and that that competition doesn't just involve big faceless monoliths. It actually involves people within them that may have come across each other before. So in the, in the case of Dead Drop, you know, we have our, our CIA officers, but they have past relationships with the Israeli intelligence agency, which is called Mossad. And Mossad is actually a, a Hebrew word that means the Institute. And it is one of the most, um, it is actually the largest intelligence agency uh, in the world. And it has a very storied history, just given uh, Israel's uh, propensity to be very forward in its national security. And then the the third agency that you mentioned, MOIS or or MOIS, is the Iranian, um, the Iranian intelligence agency. So it's the Ministry of, of Information and Security. And um, so I have uh, a, a competition happening in the book or tension in the book between what the Iranians want to do and the Israeli interpretation of that through Mossad 
which differs from the CIA's interpretation of that. So it really pits CIA against Mossad in battling the Iranians. Yeah, and that's an issue, that tension that I want to come back to. Now, you start the book off, though, with a listing of characters, but you also have the CIA case officer oath and the Mossad operations officer oath. You may have just answered this in part, but why did you start the book that way with these oaths? Uh, Because I wanted it, um, I really wanted the reader to get a feeling for what the protagonists were going through. And my protagonists come from both the CIA side and the Mossad side. Right. And, and though they end up uh, in tension with one another, what I wanted to portray was that they were both doing their level best to execute their, their mission with, with the, with the facts as they, as they understood them. Mm -hmm. And, and I love playing with the idea that, um, that, that, that many people who are honorable and doing their best and they're trying their level best to, to do what they think is right. And within the parameters of, of their oaths of office, if you will, but that as information changes, they're, they're faced with moral dilemmas and, and they wonder if they're doing the right thing. They think they are, but I like it. I like books where, where where the reader, the reader knows more than the protagonists do. And the reader can go, oh, oh, no, I don't want him to do that. He doesn't understand, you know, right. that kind of thing. And I wanted to do that from the angles of both Mossad and um, the CIA. Well, it works really well in the book. Now, in the book, you, the main characters, Meredith and John Dale and Werner, you know, all intelligence agents. I'm curious, are any of these folks based on individuals you actually work with or were they composites? Yeah, I think of them. Um, the, probably so, some are some are composites of people I've worked with. Others are composites of people I've read about. Okay. So in the case of in the case of John and Meredith, I, to me, Meredith is someone. It represents a lot of the of career women I've worked with, both in the military and um, in tech, mm-hmm. who are who are who are tough, you know, and who are very ambitious and um, and have to deal with uh, a male dominated field. And they have certain ways of, I think, I think doing that some, there's some things that annoy them. There's other things where they use their, their own femininity to, to sort of advance themselves. But I wanted to, I, I, you know, to me that, that represented um, a career woman Um, for, for, for John, I, that, that represented many, uh, many of people that I know um, who are, or, are, are later on in their careers, um, either in the intelligence world or the military, and are pretty salty and mm-hmm. a tiny bit jaded. They're still honorable, um, uh, but they're just a little bit tired, yeah. and they want to get on with, you know, sort of a normal life. And um, the trouble is that, that, that you know, they're vital to, to something that's, that's happening in the world. And then with Werner, um, uh, he really represented the research that I did on the Mossad. I had the opportunity to actually interview a few um, former Mossad officers, which which was which was great. And I and I did get uh, it was almost like creating a composite sketch of what these um, uh, these senior command uh, Mossad commanders are like. And a few of them have have gone public in the last um, several years. Uh, and, and, and reading some of their, you know, memoirs or public statements, I started to get a real sense of 
how these guys might think and how their cultural background would really uh, inform their aggressiveness in action. That's really fascinating. Well, let me ask you this. I, I often ask authors um, when, when they're writing fiction, if the characters that they create help write the story for them in Dead Drop, um, is there one in particular that helped do that uh, for you? <laughs> it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, as you mentioned, I, I don't I didn't really have like formal training as to how to write novels. I kind of developed my own method. But one of the things that I coached myself into was that if I could create strong enough characters, then those characters could, could you know, if I got stuck, I could basically put those characters together in the same spot and they would and you know let them rip you know right, right. <laughs> and 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 so it was this i i started to say to myself okay the, the people move the plot the plot don't move the people even though at the end of the day i know i'm the master of this universe yeah. um, to me the characters really drive it and so for me in this book that was that was four four people it was john and meredith um and then on the israeli side it was uh Werner and maya uh-huh. And and to a lesser to a lesser extent, I I do have um, the other CIA officers who are sort of higher up. But one represents more of the the bureaucratic side, and the other is a, a true senior officer who is both you know looking out for the national interest, the agency, as well as his best his best people. So I, I did try to let all of them move move the plot, and to me, they they reacted the way these guys who are real to me really, really would. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you know, when you're creating, you live with these characters. Um, I know I had an author one time surprise me and say that sometimes he would start writing a section and the character would say, nope, nope, I'm not going to do that. Um, and he would have to revise it. And, you know, for the non-writer, that sounds crazy, but I'm assuming you've had a similar experience where you started to go down a path and then this, this is not, they're not going to let you do that. Yeah, uh, and that's and that 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 harkens back to the the when you asked me about you know am I a plotter, an outliner, uh-huh. or a seat of the pants person, and that's where I I I really feel like I'm both because uh-huh. you do have this outline, but as you're doing it, your characters, if 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 you're really identifying with these characters and you're living with them, and I don't think you can write a good book unless you are, then yeah, they they you know you can be writing dialogue and one of these characters will say something and you're like, man, I don't know where I got that from. And you realize, well, cause you're in your subconscious, this person's real to you. And they do, they do react, um, certain ways. And you, most of all, there's guardrails. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's definitely things they wouldn't say. There's definitely right. things that, you know, where they wouldn't react a certain way. And so that guides it. But then when you're really deep into that fantasization of writing, yeah, I've, that, that has definitely happened to me. <laughs> All right, so this is relevant in the book. There's a lot of tension, you alluded to it earlier, that develops between the CIA and Mossad. How much of that deception, because there is a little bit that goes on, and how much cooperation in your experience and in researching it is there between Mossad and, and say, the CIA? Well, there's there's a tremendous amount of cooperation between right. Mossad and CIA, um, and there's there are some operations that I read about and used as a model in the book um, that are that are unclassified or, or you know, but but one that I'll highlight is in 1983, um, you know, rather famously, uh, the the U.S. Marines were 
housed in a barracks uh, in, in Beirut right. near the airport as a peacekeeping operation, and um, and someone came in came in and put a truck bomb under them and and, and yeah. killed. We lost 283 yeah. Marines, and um, between Mossad and CIA, they pieced together that that was one of the founders of Hezbollah, which is a Iran-backed terrorist group in Lebanon today. And that guy's name was was Mugnia, was was the ringleader. Well, later, m- many years later, it wasn't until 2006 that CIA and Mossad worked together to kill Mugnia in a in a rather cloak and dagger operation where they they buried a bomb in a in a spare tire uh, of a car in which Mugnia was riding in um, in Syria. And so, you know, it just it just it was very much a cooperation. I also had highlighted. Um, Something that's that's written a, a lot about called Stuxnet, which is yeah. a joint mm-hmm. CIA-Israeli operation to sabotage Iranian um, nuclear enrichment. And so I think you know 90% of the time there's deep cooperation, but at the end of the day, nations have interests, not friends. And what I wanted to portray in the book is that there could be a political divide in the way that the Americans handle the Iranians versus the way the Israelis want to, and that's the root of the tension and dead drop. Yeah, and, and that's very realistic. Now, uh, as an aside, but also interesting, there's several women in the book that are referred to as honey traps. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. For those that might not know what that, was, that is, tell us briefly what a honey trap is. Sure. Um, uh, a honey trap is a, is a, is a woman, uh, an attractive woman, who's meant to seduce uh, a foreign spy for, for various reasons. And I, I actually pulled that the opening or one of the early scenes in Dead Drop uh, references, you know, one of the Mossad agents, uh, officers, who lured a, a, uh, a man, you know, to a bar and, and, right. and kept him there while other agents went through his stuff. And, you know, I've, I've, I, in my research, I read, you know, Mossad's done that several times right? <laughs> and rather and rather successfully. And one of the things I learned, too, um, is that a, a great strength that Mossad has is that because because Israel is re- really a, a country that's only 70 years old, they are a country of immigrants, you know, um, people of Jewish faith that have yeah. moved there yeah. from all over the world and literally all over the world. So, they, you know, from Africa or, mm-hmm. or Asia or wherever. And so that gives Mossad a very deep da- talent pool yeah, of um, yeah. people that speak the languages and can integrate into other cultures, and they take great advantage of that. And so that was something that I, that I was I was trying to uh, show as well. Okay. All right. So the backdrop to the story is the attempt at the time of the Obama administration to negotiate a deal with the Iranians over nuclear weapons and Israel's desire possibly to derail that negotiation. Did you have to do any research on that? I mean, I certainly remember reading a little bit about it publicly, but did you have to do any additional research on that? To, to be honest, I, I, I don't know if it's a habit from being an intelligence officer where we were you know, expected to be on top of geopolitical issues, but right. I read that stuff every day. I mean, I regularly read uh, uh, three publications, the, the Economist, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, yeah. And um, all three of them do it just just a terrific job with slightly different takes on what's happening um, internationally and the repercussions. And if if you what one of the since on top of those three, 
Another great asset for, for research has become podcasts yeah. where you can listen to experts in these areas uh, expound, you know, really deeply uh, and, and in a way that is a little more human and relatable. And I remember one of the inspirations, I think, was not only my base knowledge of, of this stuff, but also um, hearing a, a podcast interview with um, with a, a man, I forget, his name escapes me at the moment, but mm-hmm. he had basically led um, led some of the negotiation. And he he explained the, the Iranian point of view. Um, you know, he explained that, hey, look, um, the Iranians have actually a nuclear reactor uh, uh, that was given to them by the Americans in the late 70s when the Shah was in charge. And that reactor requires low-yield uh, uranium. Um, to operate and, and do things for uh, that, that are related to medicine. So the Iranians were like, look, we, we do have nuclear power. You know, they also have a, uh, a reactor on the Persian Gulf built by the Russians. And, and so they have, you know, practical applications for uh, low enriched uranium. The devil in the, is in the details over, okay, so, but when you get this uranium, you can then use gas centrifuges to turn U-238 into U-235, which becomes fissionable, yeah. which is can be the basis for a nuclear weapon. And so I, as I was listening to this podcast, he was explaining all the ways they tried to kind of get around that and the ways that they tried to make themselves comfortable in doing so. And so I tried to show politically the way um, uh, an administration that would want a peaceful deal with the, Isra- the Iranians would look at it. Versus the way the Israelis would look at it, who would say, no way, don't trust it. We're blowing this whole thing up. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's where I wanted the political divide. Right. And the tension is real, and it, it plays really well in the book. Now, one of the things that I, did, I had never even thought of this, but in the book, one of the characters makes the observation that even if there is a deal struck with Iran, it would not cover Hezbollah. And that Iran could, could perhaps provide such a weaponry, you know, get around it, if you will, is that accurate? That that, that that's it, it a possibility. Is, it is, and I'm glad you said that because that was I, I do I like to think uh, that when you write a when you dramatize a thriller about um, current events that you can actually you know you can you can maybe point out something yeah. that that readers don't necessarily know, and that was something I really wanted to get across was that Hezbollah Hezbollah is um, is is kind of a scary entity. They're yeah. they're both a political party as well as a standing army within the country of Lebanon. And they are a country within a country. The, uh, we actually, the United States, has a good relationship with the formal national government of Lebanon. But when it comes to Hezbollah, who is in the, the southern part of Beirut and, and, and big swaths of southern Lebanon, they, they are completely in control. And I yeah. spoke to several people you know, from Lebanon and, and Beirut that, that told me all about how that works. And so from the Israeli point of view, it's very politically, it's a, the third rail of Israeli politics is to go start another war in Lebanon. Their last one was in, you know, 2006, and they faced sort of world condemnation. But if you look at um, it from the Israeli point of view, at least their national security point of view, they're sitting there saying we have an Iranian client state standing on our northern border at all times. Yeah. And that client state operates sophisticated weapons. They operate surface to air missiles. They operate ballistic missiles. So 
if Iran were allowed to enrich, you know, or uranium, one of the things they could do would be to get a warhead to Hezbollah. And that is the point of view of Werner, the head of Mossad in the book, that, that he's trying to forestall. All right. So one of the issues that struck me as I read the book, um, and, and this had me thinking a bunch, is how often do intelligence agencies do things that their own government is unaware of? And how does that, and maybe this is, just got me thinking about maybe why you had the oaths at the beginning. How does that square with their oaths? Yes, and that's where I tried to get back to the yeah. moral dilemma about, hey, there's times when you have to say, well, what is what is the right what is the right thing here and it and are there points where operational security in the pursuit of an intelligence operation um, are, are more important than having you know everybody know about it when it would risk when it would risk blowing something up so in in the book um, one of the things one of the things that happens is that the CIA has access to an Iranian um, defector, mm-hmm. and uh, and when that when something goes wrong and they lose access to that to that defector, the last thing they want is for that to leak, which would then blow up the the political deal that the that the administration is is working on. So so the in that case the in, the intelligence people involved are think they're doing the right thing by, you know, not saying anything and just trying to, to, to get the guy back. Right. And um, I, I have um, several instances where that occurs because I, again, I want the reader to be in the minds of these uh, intelligence operators on all sides, on yeah. the yeah. Iranian side, the Israeli side, the American side, thinking, well, you know, what would I do? What is the right thing there? And I, I think that's one of the beauties of the novelistic form. Yeah. Well, and of course, the biggest moral dilemma, at least as, as I read the book, is, and I had to wonder about it, is how does the oath that these folks take relate to the possible killing of innocents, right? For sure. And, you know, we, that's, that's something that happens um, yeah. uh, in the real world regularly. I, I think um, another idea that I like to play with is that people can get comfortable with the idea of, say, a drone strike on a terrorist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can seem okay. And yet if you send in, say, um, an operative who, you know, killed that terrorist brutally, you know, with a knife, right? Well, that, that somehow offends our sensibilities, whereas the former does not. <laughs> and I was thinking about that. Um, there was a, 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 a SEAL, uh, a chief petty officer back in 2019 who the the Navy wanted to court-martial because he killed an ISIS terrorist um, with a knife and then took a trophy photo with it. And I honestly think it's one of those things where it's like, look, it didn't didn't play well. Whereas if you kill the guy with a a drone, you know, nobody looks the other way. And and in a drone, frankly, it could be even worse because there could be more collateral damage. So I I think that these these moral dilemmas and trade-offs of the greater good versus, you know, uh, something, something going wrong, uh, need, need, need to happen all the time. Yeah. Well, there's a historical evolution to that. I mean, I know a, a little bit of history and at one time you would have never bombed innocence and then world war two comes along. And then, so we sure. get used to that. And then, then the drones come on. Yeah. So you, you're part of this evolutionary arc, I guess. Um, 
Well, well, and I and I and I think that that we try to make ourselves comfortable by using words like surgical strike, and <laughs> and we and we want to believe that it's all very antiseptic, in that you know this thing can just come out of the sky and just remove <laughs> remove this problem. Where look, I think it's a lot harder to to contain, and I tried to show that as much as I could in the book. Unfortunately, uh, MP, that's all the time we have for today. Folks, you've been listening to the Writer's Forum, and I've been speaking with author M.P. Woodward about his new book, Dead Drop. I encourage you to pick it up. It's a great read. M.P., is there a website or other social media that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and about the book? Yeah, I would encourage you to go to mpwoodward.com. That's, you know, as in Michael Patrick Woodward, but mpwoodward.com. And uh, and I catch I catch folks up on national security there as well as provide all my social media coordinates. Okay, well, MP, thanks for being on the show. A, a real pleasure, Mike. Thank you. The music for today's show has been provided by Valerie Hunt Jester, and the show is produced by Tyler O'Brien. Tune in next Tuesday at 4 p.m. and Wednesday at 5:30 a.m. for the next segment of the Writers Forum.